Okay, we're through that really difficult uh, part. So the rest of it, we go through a few sections, and I'll take some from each section, but we will cover the other four. So I want to consider for a moment <clears throat> the insufficiency of Calvinism's definitions. And when coming out of Calvinism, I had to just question everything. And one of the things I began to question, I would ask myself, is the Calvinist definition of this the only definition? So at that point, I just wanted to know, is there any possible, because in Calvinism, you really don't think there is. And then once I did that, and I got that clear, and I didn't imbue it with Calvinism, then I would ask, okay, is there one that is as good or maybe even better? And by better, meaning that it fit with more scripture. And that was the process I had to do with all of these terms because if the definitions of Calvinism are true, Calvinism's true. So I would tell you, it's like watching a court case. The prosecutor comes in, lays his case out, and you're thinking, you're gone, buddy. There's nothing that can be done. The defense attorney comes in and he immediately begins challenging definitions and assumptions, and, and all of a sudden you're going, well, this thing could turn. That's the idea. So, for example, sovereignty, big word in Calvinism. Sovereignty, 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 sovereignty. So, Psalms 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's what a Calvinist would say to you, and I say, exactly. <laughs> we both agree. What we disagree on, what pleases God. That's what we disagree on, but we don't disagree on him being sovereign. We disagree on what sovereignty means. <clears throat> Biblically, sovereignty means God created everything, he possesses everything, and therefore everything is under his jurisdictional reign and authority, period. So he created the universe, and he is above, over. Nothing is outside the purview of his jurisdictional uh, sovereignty and, and authority. Calvinism... <clears throat> understand sovereignty in a very causal sense. Remember, everything is determined. So he is sovereign over what he determined, and everything is determined, so everything happens exactly like it is. And you'll hear them make arguments that he can't be sovereign over free will beings that can choose this or that. Or if one speck in the universe isn't doing exactly what he controlled it to do, then he's not sovereign. So you see they're defining it in a very causal, very limited uh, sense. In their understanding, everything's determined, remember, sin and so forth, including his permissive will. So sometimes when you ask about sin, a Calvinist say, well, I mean his permissive will, but remember his permissive will is a part of his decretal will, and you're still a compatibilist, and so everything in his permissive will is determined. It's no less determined than anything else. And then they'll say, <clears throat> well, I mean, God uses secondary causes. Well, it doesn't matter if he uses secondary or tertiary or quaternary or quinary or scenary or go on down the list. It doesn't matter how many causes. They're all determined. So whatever is happening is precisely as God determined it to be, no matter how horrid it is or how great it is. <clears throat> the dictionary, so you can go home and look up sovereignty. It's an English word. I mean, you can look it up. And the dictionary says, to have su supreme rank or authority, jurisdictionally supreme authority. Does it mean control? They make sovereignty and control synonymous. 
Now, some Calvinists will admit that that's not an accurate definition, but they do it over and over and over. <clears throat> Extensivism says that God created everything, and therefore he is over everything and in charge of everything, and he owns everything. But it doesn't mean that he has to control every single move or every single thought and so forth. Again, free will is a force, a powerful force, but it is created by God, and he is sovereign over that force, and that force is not rogue. It is not uh, usurpatory, meaning it's not usurping his authority. He's the one that created it. So they make it as though, yeah, well, you believe man could... No, it's under God's sovereignty. It's all under his sovereignty. <clears throat> so you'll never find it meaning control, only in Calvinism. So there are better definitions. Uh, election's an interesting one. So as we said, it's unconditional election. And as a Calvinist, even when you see the word election, you superimpose unconditional. It's just the way you're thinking as a Calvinist. But there are no times in the New Testament that the adjective unconditional precedes election, period. That is a theological importation from Calvinism. You just find the word elect or uh, select and so forth. Electos <clears throat> is the word. So what unconditional election again means is that God chose so nothing matters. And remember, nothing is what a box of rocks dreams about. So nothing really means nothing. Unconditional means there are no conditions. So when somebody stands up and says, well, you know, my grandmother prayed for me and everything. Well, that does not really relate. Because if you make what God did in salvation have anything to do with that, then you have injected a condition and you no longer have unconditional. So God looked at the person and everything. There was nothing that he conditioned it on. They say, well, you know, prayer and everything, I mean, it's a part of the process. But again, remember, the process is determined. So what I argue is it's insubstantially related, not substantially. Substantially related, the Bible presents prayer is that if we pray, some things will be different than if we do not pray. Therefore, they're substantially related. If you don't pray, so any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. If you don't ask, you don't get it. If you get it without asking, then what's the point? So it's a conditional. There are if you, if you, if you, all these conditionals. So in, in Calvinism, the permissive will is all determined. All conditionals are determined, whether you do them or you don't do them and so forth. <clears throat> so election... If there's anything, someone's prayer that God considered in a substantial way, meaning if they hadn't prayed, he wouldn't have elected you, or at least at that time, then that's conditional. We're no longer talking about unconditional. So they do this all the time. They share testimonies about witnessing or whatever. But if that witnessing had it, remember, when you're, before you're regenerated, you can't accept the witness of anybody. It can't move you one millimeter, not one, nothing. It cannot move you at all. You cannot have a spiritual thought about God that's right until you have this new work of God. So nothing matters up until God's election. Not even the gospel, because the gospel is not good news because you'll never receive it. What's good news is once you find out that you're on the list, 
And that's revealed to you by the gospel. But the gospel is not the good news. The list is the good news. The gospel is the revealer of that. <clears throat> now, uh, Calvinists speak of the elect as an abstract group. Uh, it's just very common as a Calvinist. You say, God's elect, God's gathering his elect. And so you see it's this abstract group. But David Allen, uh, who's a scholar and a professor at Southwestern, he's done some really important work in this area. <clears throat> and he shows that the term elect is never used of an abstract group. He says, there is no place in scripture where elect refers to an abstract class of all the elect, unborn elect and believing elect, believing elect, glorified elect. Every time the word elect occurs in scripture, it refers only to believers. Meaning, when they're talking about that, they've gone beyond the biblical language. So elect is synonymous with who's a believer at that moment, but it has nothing to do with who might become one. It's never used in that way, yet Calvinists are dependent on that and talk about it, and the whole mission enterprise is to go out and to gather God's elect. So they've gone beyond the scripture when they're talking about that. But here's what I did, and this is what I'm asking you to think about. So electos, the word, definitionally means to choose or select. Everything else is... You're, you're dealing with theology and philosophy and different things, but it just means it's like, that's all the word tells you. You don't really know anything, what's going on in the mind of the selector or the elector. We just know he chose. So it'll say, and he chose you before the foundation of the world. We go, oh my gosh, I was predestined. Or is that predetermined? No, it's the word chose. So let me give you some examples. <clears throat> It's the, same, it's the same idea as choose or elect in our language. So we uh, choose a president. We elect a president, right? So we had an election. We elected a president. And you're talking to somebody, and they say, <clears throat> yeah, Russia had one, and they elected Putin. And so we go right on. We both use the word electos or elect, elect, but we mean very different things. You know why? Because in America, the election starts at the bottom and goes up. In Russia... It starts at the top at the Politburo, and they pick the candidates, and they go down, and that's who you vote on, so they pick Putin's going to run, and then it goes down, you get to cast your vote for Putin, and it goes back up, but you didn't really have a choice, you see, or they put two out. Ours, look how many Democrats, last time we had 16 Republicans, have a whole host of them. So you see, the term that we had an election doesn't tell us what was comprehended in that. So in England, they have elections, and it's more of a, a Democratic-type voting than we have. But it's very different, because you'll hear them, they'll have an election, and if they have five parties, and if no party gets a majority, they have to constitute a brand-new government. It's very different. So let's take Mark and I. We're, we're choosing <clears throat> some people to play on our football teams, so you're all here and he picks somebody, and I pick somebody, and we go back and forth. But there just happens to be a British student here, and so I pick the British guy to be on my team. And Mark's over here thinking, what, what are you doing? They don't know the difference in soccer and football. I mean, what, why would Ronnie select a Brit? He's going to lose. So later in private, he comes up and said, why would you select that guy? I said, I like the British. I like them. I want one on my team. 
See, he couldn't figure it out because I selected just like he selected, but he did not know what was in the mind of the elector. That's what the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament explains to you about the word chosen or elect. <clears throat> he could have chosen us and determined everything, and you had no choice. Or he could have chosen and comprehended otherwise choice in his selection. So we superimpose just because we see the word. <clears throat> so you look at the rest of the New Testament, and I would say it's grace-enabled faith, and grace is the basis of salvation. Faith is the means. Salvation is the work of God through the means that is a part of his work, which is faith, which is by grace. But it's not a work. The work is what God did in salvation. Uh, let me give you another one, foreknowledge. <clears throat> you may not find them that do this, but if you keep studying the theology of Calvinists, you'll find very knowledgeable Calvinists that argue way out here, which you're not going to hear in church generally is, that God could not know the acts of free libertarian beings. Those acts are called contingencies. And the idea is <clears throat> you could know, if you knew the past of a compatibilist, you could tell what they were going to choose, right? Because of the determinative antecedent. But a libertarian free being, whatever their past is, you still can't figure out what they're going to choose because they could change their mind at the last second. So they impose that on God, that God couldn't. So they, this is why they're so uh, adamant against libertarian freedom is because God couldn't know those acts. But the answer to that is, well, their answer is God knows what he determined and he determined what he knows. There's very little difference, there is a little, but there's very little difference between God foreknowing and God foreordaining or predetermining in Calvinism. And they'll say that. John MacArthur says it on Romans 8.29. There's very little difference. <clears throat> so they conflate the two terms, that if God foreknows it, he foreordained or he predetermined it. But others who don't believe that everything is determined, and I'm one of them, there's a couple of ways to explain God's foreknowledge, and, and they can even work in a coalesced uh, system but I explain it that God is essentially omniscient, meaning that as an essential property of deity, he cannot not know. So he has always known everything. There's never been a millisecond that he didn't know. <clears throat> and really for God to know the free acts of human beings, and they'll picture it like, so you believe God looks down the halls of human history? No. God doesn't learn perceptively. God doesn't learn. He has nothing to learn. He has always known everything. It is an essential property of deity like omnipotence is, like omnipresence is, like omnibenevolence. He cannot not be those things, see? So... <clears throat> But all God has to know, so he never looks beyond himself. This is the Calvinist. When they do this, they, 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 it's a very subtle thing. <clears throat> so they'll say, well, well God foreknows what we're going to do because he predetermined, and so here he is. But God has to kind of look out there and see what you're going to do. Well, notice how the conversation just changed. God in eternity knew, but God's learning. See, 
they change the conversation. So I take a step back and I say, no, God has always known. God doesn't look out beyond himself to know anything. He doesn't look down the halls of history. He looks within himself. And for him to know everything, he knows things that he determined. I call those definite events. <clears throat> and they happen necessarily. No human freedom or will is involved in them. Second coming, creation, salvation plan. We didn't have a part of that. There are indefinite events, and those are events that happen certainly, but not necessarily, and they're the result of choice of people. And they could have been different had the person chosen differently. So God knows those, but the only thing he has to know to know them is to know himself exhaustively, because he knows everything. So he doesn't look outside himself. And all he has to know is his intention. He always intended to create the universe with mankind in it, with free choice, and that's all he has to know because he knows everything. You see what I'm getting at? When they are posing that he's looking outside of himself, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the scripture poses. He knows everything. He's always known. You have to have some humility when you talk about God, so just think about this. This is a way that reminds me. At this very second, there's about 7 billion minds on planet Earth. And he knows what every mind is thinking and can distinguish between them right now. And he has always known that. You've got to understand, God is way beyond what we can fully understand. He knows and he's always known. So he can know the free acts of beings without controlling all of them. <clears throat> Another thing I would mention real quickly, just remember with monergism, salvation's monergistic, and then later you're talk, you say, okay, it's all God and you didn't do anything, and then you say, well, didn't, didn't God force you to believe? No, we believe. So you have to understand regeneration, <clears throat> when God gives them a new nature or new past, that's monergistic. God alone, they did not participate. They're actively rebelling against it. That's all they can do. They can't contribute in any way. Once God changes that nature, then they get a new past, and according to compatibilism, then they freely believe and they're saved. But <clears throat> technically, it's not salvation by faith because regeneration is a part of salvation. So some Calvinists who are attuned to this say we're justified by faith because that happened later, see? So you have to keep that in mind, this sequential thing, or it'll mess you up every time. Now let me give you a really important one, and this is a Calvinist. These are, I'm using Calvinist strongholds, if you don't know what I'm doing, and I'm showing you how there are better answers because I walked through these as I was coming out. <clears throat> so the words draw, and you can look in your Bible in John 6.44, is the verse, the Father draws, and then we'll look at John 12, 32. It says the same thing. They both use the word helkuo, same Greek word, and they both use it. One Calvinist, and his name is uh, William Hendrickson, commenting on John 6, 44. So this is a, a powerful verse for them. He says, and I quote, here, is, here the emphasis is on the divine decree of predestination carried out in history. He employs a term which clearly indicates that more than moral influence is indicated. 
Man resists, but his resistance is ineffective. That's the irresistible grace, the efficacious call. So notice, more than mental persuasion or anything like that. So this is a verse that they show that God drags you into the kingdom, the elect, and he doesn't anybody else. You don't have a chance. Freeberg and Miller, which is an analytical lexicon of the New Testament, they're explaining the range of meaning of that word. Notice, he said, surely, I mean, clearly it is more than just this mental persuasion. But this is what the lexicon says. It ranges from tug, draw, drag, and figuratively, how a strong pull in the mental or moral life draw and attract. It's not what he said. It has a broader range. Richard Trench, same word in synonyms of the New Testament, says concerning halkuo, it is unlike a similar word, suro, S-U-R-O, in which there always lies the notion of force. And the notion of force or violence does not necessarily lie with halkuo any more than in our word, draw, which we use of mental and moral attraction. So the very thing the Calvinists say it doesn't mean, it actually has that in the range of meanings, just like we do. Now, further, that particular word, halkuo, is used eight times in the New Testament. Three times it's used of people who are against other people. So somebody dragging you, a mob dragging you, or dragging you off to jail, and there lies that force, see, dragging. And a Calvinist will give you that example. <clears throat> it's also used of things. So like pulling a sword from a sheath. So you can see how that's, the sword's not choosing to be pulled. And uh, pulling a fishnet. <clears throat> so it's used in that way. So that's six ways that it's used. So you have two other occurrences, and that is John 6 and John 12. The father drawing and the son drawing. They read John 6 as a forced drawing. The question I pose is, does that fit both of them? Because John 12, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Can't mean salvation. So it must be another kind of drawing than forced. So is it the best interpretation what they're using? The answer is no but you would have to study the word out to find these things. <clears throat> so salvation is God giving himself to us. It is God, that's John 3, 16, God calling us and drawing us. He's attracting us. And it's interesting, part of the word there is attract or to have mental persuasion. And when you read Titus chapter 2, and it's all about their behavior, and then he, <clears throat> verse 11, he summarizes that salvation has come to all men. But right before that, he talks about the slaves and to keep their behavior good so that it will adorn the doctrine of the Savior. And the word adorn means to make attractive. Our lives can make the Savior attractive. But if there's just dragging and compatible free will, that has nothing. <clears throat> now let me skip to uh, comprehending the language barrier. So I want to do this just a few minutes and show you how this works out. So Calvinists talk in ways 
Never dealing with motive again. I did, I did every one of these. I know them by heart. I've argued them. But I was always trying to be honest and reveal God. And I think that's what they're trying to do. But it doesn't do that. That's the problem. So let me give you some examples. <clears throat> God loves to save sinners. You hear Calvinists all the time. God loves to save sinners. John Piper wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And it's about the mission enterprise of taking the gospel to the nations. But that's not really reflective of Calvinism and unconditional election because God doesn't really love to save sinners. He loves to save some sinners. You see, what I'm asking for is clarity. You believe he only wants some saved. He only wants to save. He doesn't love saving the non-elect. He made them reprobate. John Piper, it's not let the nations be glad because some of them cannot possibly be saved. It's let some. All I'm asking is say it so that everybody understands exactly what you mean and what's entailed in your beliefs. <clears throat> God loves all the lost differently. Well, not, that's one of the understatements of the world there. <clears throat> I mean, that's an aside. But they would say, you say, well, does God love the lost? Because he's not saving them, see? And again, their answers don't answer the question because what you're asking is, well, if God really loves them, why didn't he save them? You're, you're talking about salvific love, salvational love. And they say, well, God loves them different. Well, there are different kinds of love, different kind of love for an animal, different kind of love between spouses, for children, for parents, for friends. There are different kinds. <clears throat> but again, there, we're looking in the context of salvation, see? So you can be talking about a verse on salvation, and they'll go into different kind of love. No, we're asking, does God salvifically love them? Which apparently, <clears throat> he doesn't. <clears throat> Uh, 1 John 4, 8, and 16 says God is love. That's, that's an onto, what we call an ontological statement, meaning it's speaking about the essence of God. So it's not that God just loves or God does loving things. It is the essence of God is love. Just like omnipotence, omniscience, uh, sensual uh, omniscience, and so forth. Jerry Walls in his book, Does God Love Everyone, says... The Shorter Catechism, which is an abbreviated version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, a classic Calvinist statement of faith. The Catechism asks this most fundamental theological question, what is God? So this is a, something Calvinists use all the time. Here is the answer that is given. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, Power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's question number four. Then he asks, do you notice anything missing from this definition? What's missing is God is love. So they just defined him, but they forgot about that. He goes on, and he's referring to Calvin's Institutes, which every professor or theologian is going to have that. It's a big volume like this. We've all got it. So Walsh says, Calvin's most important and well-known work is his Institutes of Christian Religion. The book is a landmark in the history of theology and rightly recognized as a great work in the history of Christian thought. 
My English translation of this book is 1,521 pages long, not counting the bibliography in the index. Calvin quotes scripture extensively throughout the book. In fact, the scripture index at the back of the book is 40 pages long. So he quotes thousands of biblical text, and they are discussed by Calvin in this monumental work. But here is what is truly remarkable. Not one time in this book does Calvin ever quote, God is love. Calvin never one time cited 1 John 4, 8 or 1 John 4, 16, not once. I actually took mine and looked at it just to make sure. That's a very interesting fact. It's not that they don't believe God loves or anything. I'm not saying that. It's just interesting that that omission is there when nothing else was omitted. And by the way, they write books on the love of God all the time, books and books and books. And you know what they're trying to explain? How God can be perfect love, the sum of love, perfection, and how he can love everybody and yet damned most of the population to hell. John MacArthur's book, God, I mean, this is what they're trying to do. What about the good faith offer? So the good faith offer is the idea, uh, so how do you preach the gospel if, if you're the elect and you're not like, but I don't know that. So how do you preach? Well, we make a good faith offer. Now, you have to understand that their language has to be very guarded. So they could never look at this group and say, God desires you to be saved. They can't do that. God loves you, wants you to They can't do that. Jesus died for you. Can't do that unless they're a four-point. And by the way, the four-point, the reason I was a four-point, because, because I do believe it showed that Christ died for everybody. But what was behind that, we thought that it freed us up to tell everybody Christ died for your sins and he wants you to be saved. But you see, we went too far. Because if unconditional election is true, it doesn't matter if he died for your sins or not. You can't be saved. So it didn't solve the problem that I lived for many years thinking it did. And every time I talked to a four-point, we agreed, yeah, it solves that problem. But it didn't solve it. We just thought it did. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, part of it, Paul said to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received from Christ, that Christ... Or, that I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He's referring back to when he was preaching the gospel to them before they were saved. If limited atonement is true, he could not have said that, that he died for our sins. If there's nothing there, meaning that Christ didn't die for their sin, their sins haven't been paid for, it seems like there needs to be something to be a good faith offer. I mean, if I offer to sell you a car, there needs to kind of be a car, <laughs> right? Something needs to exist, but there's nothing there because he didn't pay for their sin. They're not being offered anything. And even if it was, it's not, but even if it was, it's not accessible. They can never say that God desires anyone to be saved or everybody to be saved. They cannot do that. They can say, if you believe, you'll be saved. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So let me give you something. You can, in John chapter 17, he prays for the disciples and everything, but when he gets to verse 20 and 21, he prays for the whole world to know him. That's Jesus. He said in Luke chapter 22, 17 through 20, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, this is the bread that is my body, this is the cup that is my blood, that is shed for you. And the you is plural to everybody that was there and Judas was there. 
The Bible warns of the wrath for those who do not obey the gospel, like in 2 Thessalonians 1.8. What, what, what are they not obeying? What is there? There's nothing. There's nothing to obey. He didn't die for their sin. He doesn't salvifically love them. It's interesting, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27, Jesus dealing with a rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler came and said, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a simple question. Jesus answered the question. But the interesting thing about Mark's passage is, it says, and Jesus loved him. And it uses the word agape. So you've got to understand, Jesus said, got a serious question. Here's how you get saved. This is what you've got to do. And he loved him. But he was clearly not an elect because he walked away. Why was Jesus telling an elect that he could be saved? And they say, aha, well, Jesus as a person didn't really know. I mean, you know, he, he, he didn't have full knowledge. I, I find that a little bit difficult because uh, he did create the plan, if that's true. But let's just assume that he didn't, and they will bring up Matthew 24. God, uh, Jesus doesn't know the hour. Nobody knows the hour and stuff of, of his coming. That's a little different than telling somebody, this is how you get saved. It'd be like telling somebody, I'm coming this time, but he really didn't know. He's not putting forth any information. He is here. But here's what the thing is. It misses the whole point. Because you can look at verses like John 12, 49 and 50, John 4, 34, 5, 30, 6, 38, etc. Jesus said he only spoke what the Father revealed to him. So when Jesus spoke, it was the words directly from the Father. And he only did the will of the Father. So there is no way you can separate the father not knowing that that person was the non-elect. It always gets back to who is God. So God, the father, is giving Jesus the words to present as though there's a way out of this guy's dilemma, but there's not because God, the father, decided that. Good faith offer doesn't remove Jesus from complicity and the cover-up. Whosoever will may be saved, whosoever will may come. So if you ask a Calvinist, you could leave here and you could go, yeah, that guy was talking, you know, and, and you believe whosoever will may come. To, yeah, I do, absolutely. Whosoever will may come. But that's not really your question. That doesn't answer the question because your question is, can my Uncle Tom be saved? Can my dad be saved? Can my daughter be saved? Can my... Does God love my spouse and want them saved? And the Calvinists will say, God said, whosoever will may come, and if they'll come. But you see, they're not answering your question. They're not answering it, because yours is very personal. You have somebody in mind. So what you're asking really is, you just don't know the language you have to know to jump the hurdles. You're asking, can my spouse will by God's grace to come. Then the Calvinist has to say, not if he's on elect. But you see, you have to dig through these layers, and that's what I'm trying to ask. Why can't we be clear so that everybody knows what we're talking about and so forth? Uh, and when they say, by the way, whosoever will may come, it's what I call trivially true. Yeah, it's true in a trivial sense, but not everybody can will to do that. And again, we're back to the question. Uh, they say Calvinism focuses more on a God and, 
extensivists focus more on man or Arminianism because we have man have playing a component. No, we don't. We're focused on God. We just don't degrade God by degrading his pinnacle of creation, man and woman, to being a determined being. We don't degrade God by saying he's incapable of being sovereign over humans who have otherwise choice. We don't degrade God by saying he can only know future if he determined it. So I would argue that they have the lesser view of God because he can only know what's determined. He can only be sovereign over that. So if you were to take the work of, of Beethoven and you were to find it was corrupt, it wasn't what it appeared, uh, he actually did it by the numbers. You know, he had one of those color things or something. You would think less of him, Right? Because the work bespeaks of the creator. You know what? I, I've never met uh, Thomas Aquinas or, or Beethoven or any of these people. But I think of them greatly because I've looked at some of the works and I'm pretty amazed. But what if I found out some space cadet did that or they painted by the numbers? Then all of a sudden I don't think very highly. That's what they're doing with God. So we're not focusing more on man. And again, you have to be very careful how the conversation goes. We believe God determined and he's in charge and amen, praise God, and you are looking to what man... And again, they shifted the discussion. So I say, no, we never go out there. We're always here. So here's the easy way to do it. And I don't know why I put my hands up when I talk about eternity, but I do this. And I've done it for years and I can't stop it. I, I just, in this sense, I must be determined. But it just, it just seems like I have to do it to show you I'm in eternity. I just step out of time and I'm in eternity. In eternity, and again, when you talk about eternity, we bring in time words so we all understand it doesn't fit, but it's, it's the only way we can really talk. So in eternity past, God could have chosen to create this universe with compatibly free beings. He could have chosen to create this universe with libertarian free beings. And in doing that, he knew every aspect of what that entailed exhaustively, always. So whichever one he chose, there was no learning curve. So you have to back them up. We're all back in eternity. We're not talking in time in part. Uh, you say, you know, well, I thought God was perfect mercy and all of this. And, and, he, and he's, you know, he, he, you said he didn't choose these and they're going to hell. And the response is, well, God is, is merciful to save one. And I used to say that all the time. And somebody would go, well, that's right. And that end that discussion. But it really didn't answer the question. Because the question is, how can a perfect God who's perfect love, who could have saved one more, ten more, or everybody, and not done anything else because the death of Christ is sufficient, why did he not do that? Oh, it's a mystery. Well, I'm not accepting mystery. I think mystery is an intellectual dodge for not wanting to deal with the tough questions. 
So you see what I'm saying? They're answering a question that somebody's not asking, but you think they just answered your question, but they really didn't. You're asking about the nature of God. How could he do that? And they're saying, well, he's just if he saves one. And that's true. We all agree. It's just how is he perfect love? So let me give you an example. And these are things I actually did and still do with Calvinists. So we're all, eternity's in, time is no more. And all of us that are saved, you over here, and we're all in heaven. And now we've gone and we're all standing on the precipice of hell. And all of you and all the others are in hell because you were the non-elect. God chose that you would be the reprobate. He predetermined that you would go to hell. So we're all standing there on the precipice of hell looking down at you suffering. And someone says, God is holy. And man, the hallelujahs and praise God, they're just echoing through the corridors of the universe. Because whether they're in hell, God's holy. They chose to be there and they weren't washed by the blood. And if you're in heaven, he died for your sins. So God's holiness was never violated. And then somebody in the enthusiasm of the moment says, and God is love. Yeah, and there's a silence. Because there's a little problem. Yeah, when we look towards heaven, he's love. But when we look there, we're trying to figure out how is that loving when you could have done and they would have been here. The only difference in who's in heaven and who's in hell is what pleased God. That's the only difference. There is nothing else. You say, well, they're there to deserve it. They didn't deserve hell any more than the ones in heaven. Everybody in heaven deserved it. You say, well, they chose to be there. They believed. The ones in heaven chose to go to hell too until God regenerated them and gave them a new path. See, it all gets back to who is God. Uh, faith is a merit or a work. So here's... Here, Look, uh, Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 27 through 28, chapter 4, verse 1 through 5, it, it makes faith and works juxtaposed. Faith isn't works. It's the, it's the antithesis of it, in, in biblically speaking. But let me take it a step further. Here's what they do, and I deal in chapter 27 with an atomist on this very issue, but he's such a picture of what Calvinists do over and over and over. Well, God, God saves us, and it's unconditional. We didn't do anything, but he saved you based on your faith. So again, they've moved the conversation as though there's grace, and in the chapter I deal with it, they talk about so you, by faith, accepted God's grace. But we, God chose us by his grace, and we didn't do anything. But you see what just happened? They put our faith outside of grace. So man is standing here, and he exercises faith, and God gives him grace. But that's not what we're saying. Faith is in grace, the only reason that anybody can be saved by faith, the only reason a sinner can exercise faith is because of God's grace. So now we back up again. Here we are, back in eternity. Hope you're with me. And they, God's grace, chose me and nothing else. And God's grace chose us. In his choosing, he comprehended giving us the grace to be able to believe but it's all still back here. 
So they make faith the accepting of grace, but faith is a, comp a, a component of grace that accepts God's full grace, but he's the one that gives the grace to do that. So they do this over and over. So they, they also ask, well, well in, in your libertarian view, why is it that one believes and one doesn't? And again, I go into detail. It's kind of a complicated subject. But they say, well, if you believe, then you must be better than the person that didn't believe. No, 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 no. Making a good belief doesn't make you better than somebody else. Any more than making a stupid uh, choice makes you a stupid person. I tell people, just because you make a racist statement doesn't mean you're a racist. It just means you made a racist statement. Now, you may or may not be. Just like if you make a genius statement doesn't make you a genius, <laughs> right? So we can make statements and choices. You, I've seen atheists make a better choice in a situation than a Christian. But that doesn't make him better ontologically because we have Christ. You understand what I'm saying? So they, they want you to have libertarian freedom and then they want to know what caused you to make that choice. So they're superimposing determinism on you. Uh, missions to the world, this is what they're doing. You think they're taking the gospel. And let me just say something first. People say, well, they can't be evangelistic. No, they can. They can have a passion for the lost. And here's the way I would describe it. They can have a passion for the lost that's vertical. But they can't have it horizontally if they're honest, if they face it. And this is one of the things I had to deal with because we were always involved in trying to reach people and particularly in cults. For many, many years, I was involved in reaching people in various cults. And so you get to know them, you're with them over a long term, etc. And so, so in Calvinism, you can have a vertical, meaning I do evangelism, I go to missions because out of obedience to God. And they can do that. And we ought to do it out of obedience, but that's not the only thing that's going on. With them, it is the only thing, because they can't have a vertical, because, I mean, a horizontal, because they can't look at these people and know that you're the non-elect. They can't know it. This has nothing to do with whether or not they do know it or not, the good faith offer. What it has to do with, let's just say that the Calvinist is looking over here and looks at Dr. Williams and says, man, my heart's breaking for him. I really want him saved. I mean, I don't want him to go to hell. The question is, where did that come from? It didn't come from God because God wants him in hell. So it only came from two places, the devil or self. If it came from the devil, enough said. If it comes from him, then you mean he's more compassionate than God? who doesn't want him in heaven? Because if he did, he'd be over here. So they can never have that love and compassion for this person to be saved. They can do it out of obedience. But I can look at anybody and have that compassion because I believe it's from God he has that compassion. So when John Piper talks about missions, he says this is the purpose of missions to reach all the peoples of the world and thus to gather the sons of God which are scattered and to call the ransomed from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Did you see it? It's the abstract elect. You're not going out to share the gospel so somebody can be saved. You're out gathering up those that are the elect and they're going to be saved because God's already predetermined it. 
He goes on and he says, regard to making disciples of all nations a great commission. There is no good reason for construing this to mean anything other than that the missionary task of the church is to press into all unreached peoples unto, until the Lord come. So it's all about gathering this elect class. So there's no horizontal passion. There's a vertical. Now, I want to introduce you to a couple of things, so I'm going to skip a couple of those. And I want to go to what I call the double talk. By double talk, I'm not calling anybody a double talker. I'm not dealing with motives. What I'm saying is this, that they speak, they're compatibilists and determinists by their own admission, and then they speak in a libertarian way that makes you listen to them and think, well, that Ronnie didn't know what he was talking about because he talks just like I do. He interprets that verse just like I do. So, and, we, and I used to call these uh, gentle Calvinists and tried to be one of them, but actually we were inconsistent. So I'm going to read from John MacArthur. I love John MacArthur. This has nothing to do with my love. Uh, I, I recommend his Bibles. Uh, I, I mean, I read his books and on and on. I think he really does a great job of expounding Scripture because he speaks inconsistently many times with Calvinism. That's why. That's why you can read them and like them. But what it does, it makes you think, well, they believe like I do, so there's not that much difference, but they're inconsistent. So I want to give you an example. So I'm reading from, our, our, he's, he's reading from Acts 3.26, and uh, that says this, For you, first God raised up uh, his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So this is what his commentary, and you can read it on that verse. Here's what he says. All the rich blessings of salvation and all the covenant promises were available. Peter's hearers could only attain them, however, by turning from their wicked ways. Repentance was the key that unlocked everything. Peter had clearly shown that the claims of Jesus were consistent with Old Testament prophecy so that it was a compelling case for his hearers to respond in repentance and belief. Tragically, most of Peter's audience refused to repent. Like their fathers before them, they hardened their hearts and they failed to enter God's rest. So being a Calvinist, everything is determined Elect, non-elect. In what meaningful sense were all the promises available to all of them? In what meaningful way? Because clearly those that rejected were non-elect. In what meaningful way did they refuse to repent? Yeah, it's trivially true they repented, but they could not 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 repent. Well, they, he says they harden their hearts. It's a little hard to get it harder than you not only will not come, but you cannot come. Tragedy? It's not a tragedy that they didn't repent because God was pleased that they did not, and that's why they couldn't. You see, he talked in libertarian language, not Calvinist language, because Calvinism is against everything he said. So according to Calvinism's unconditional election, irresistible selective regeneration, monergistic salvation, non-repentance was exactly the only thing 
that God desired and predetermined. And they would serve as monuments of his wrath for his glory. God is pleased to damn, and I'll say things to people who are not familiar, who claim to be Calvinists, but they're just not familiar with true Calvinism, and they'll think I'm distorting it, and, and I'll say God is happy that they're there, pleases him. John Calvin, he doesn't ever tire of doing that, saying that, by the way. Here's what he says. We say then, the scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction, both only because it pleased God. Uh, by the way, he calls that an incomprehensible judgment, a mystery. The Canons of Dort, which was the council disputing the doctrines of Calvin with Arminian, Arminius, said, we say then that the scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it was his good pleasure one day to admit to salvation and those whom on the other hand it was his good pleasure to doom to destruction. So the reason people are in heaven and the reason people are in hell is that it pleases God. There is no tragedy as far as God is concerned. Uh, let me give you, uh, on the mysteries, uh, let me mention that just a moment, the inadequacy of that. So mystery, everything is an inscrutable mystery. So what we mean by that is, so God's perfect love, but he doesn't want these people saved. And if he did want them saved, he could have saved them, but he didn't. Can you explain that to me? It's a mystery. God has determined everything. People only do exactly what God wanted. Therefore, when they sinned, and every sin, God determined they would do that. How is God not in some sense culpable as being ultimately responsible? It's a mystery. But actually, when you back away, and what I did, I call these Calvinistically regener or, or generated mysteries, meaning if I pulled away and I said, okay, what if I wasn't a Calvinist? Would that be a mystery? Nope, mystery disappears. They say, well, you don't believe in mysteries. I don't believe in Calvinistically generated. I believe in mysteries. I believe God loving everybody with perfect love. That's a mystery. I don't really understand that. I don't really understand what happened between the Father and the Son in the three hours. I know the result. I know he paid for the sin. I know it was a substitutionary death. I know all of those. But that's not really comprehending everything that went on in there. That's a mystery. Those are biblical mysteries. They're not contradictions. Calvinisms are contradictions and they're generated by them. So to stay in Calvinism, they have to come up with all kinds of things. And I was telling somebody, they have two of almost everything. And so when you're talking to them, you bring something up. Well, they have another one of that that's defined a different way. And so you're like the rat in the maze and you don't know how to get from one point to the other. One of the things they do is there's two wills. So they call it God's revealed will, which is this, which you have. But God has a secret will, and you would only know that if you're a Calvinist. So John Calvin or John Piper says, quote, uh, My aim here is to show from Scripture that the simultaneous existence of God's will for all persons to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4, which is very interesting because he's admitting this teaches that God wants all people saved. 
He's admitting it. So I devote a chapter to just this thing, but I'm going to cover it in a minute or two with you. And he says, so that all persons be saved and his will to elect unconditionally those who will actually be saved is not a sign of divine schizophrenia or exegetical confusion. A corresponding aim is to show that unconditional election, therefore, does not contradict biblical expressions of God's compassion for all people. It does not nullify sincere offers of salvation to everyone who is lost among all the peoples of the world. I mean, that's the most contradictory thing. He says it's not schizophrenia and it's not exegetical confusion. Well, from a counseling and psychological point, I would have to say it is schizophrenic. And from an exegetical standpoint, it is confusion. God only elects these, but he genuinely wants everybody saved. The revealed will, he wants everybody saved, but the secret will, he's only going to choose some. Now, let me ask you something. In eternity, according to Calvinism, which one of those two wills is true? The secret. The secret wins out over this. That at least undermines sola scriptura. This is I'm not saying they're a cult, so don't go that far. I am saying that this is what, what did Muhammad do? They accept the Old and New Testament, what they think still good, but you have the Quran. The Mormons have the Book of Mormons. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have the better translation. It's always something extra, see? And by the way, what, if there's a secret will about salvation, could there not be a secret will about the church? I mean, couldn't I do church a lot different than it's laid out? Couldn't there be a secret will about eschatology that contradicts what's in the Bible, but it's more true? You, you understand the problems, but this is the links you go to. Last thing I would give you is... Uh, this has to do with God's omnibenevolence. So that means that he's good to everyone. He wants the best for everyone. Charles Hodge, a big gun in Calvinism, and he says of God's omnibenevolence, it is goodness in the scriptural sense of the term. It includes benevolence, love, mercy, and grace. By benevolence is meant the disposition to promote happiness to all sensitive creatures are his objects. And he withholds salvation. If all sensitive creatures are the objects and his disposition in benevolence is to promote happiness, how, pray tell, does that happen when you withhold salvation from them? Millard Erickson a Calvinist, a moderate Calvinist, he said, the divine attributes are harmonious. Thus, justice is loving justice, and love is just love. Justice means that love must always be shown, whether or not a situation of immediate need presents itself in pressing and vivid fashion. This means there will be a concern for the ultimate welfare of all mankind. 
How does unconditional election fit that? How does God determining this group goes to hell when he had to do nothing else except to be pleased for them to go to heaven? How in the world does that show that God has concern for the ultimate welfare of all mankind? Well, thank you very much and appreciate your attention.